You are listening to WRFG Atlanta, 89.3 FM. Up next, Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only queer radio hour. Hold on tight. And welcome to the show. And it is election day. It is seven o'clock. The polls have just closed in Atlanta and uh, around Georgia. And um, I wanted to first, well, I should say, uh, I'm Greg Bosson. Uh, welcome to Alternative Perspectives. This is uh, show is on WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM. And this is Atlanta's only local radio hour devoted exclusively to issues affecting Atlanta's queer community. I, of course, am your host. Again, my name is Greg Boston. I hope that you have voted because if you have not voted, it's too late. You cannot vote. Uh, so, uh, which is very unfortunate. The polls have closed at uh, seven o'clock and we should be hearing results soon, although knowing how tight the race here is in the state of Georgia. I would imagine that it's going to be a while before we have an answer, uh, certainly between the Senate race, uh, in the Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Um, that is tight as a drum. Uh, and the governor's race as well between uh, Stacey Abrams and uh, Governor Kemp, uh, who is the incumbent. Uh, we'll see. My guess is we'll find out that one before we find out the Senate race, but uh, we'll see what happens. So uh, <clears throat> I do have uh, a guest tonight. Uh, the guest has nothing to do with the election that's going on. However, the election uh, is not the only thing that's happening in this world. Uh, uh, last month, uh, Stony Brook Medicine, this is a, uh, a group of hospitals in Long Island, New York, uh, released the findings of a 2021 health needs study of the LGBTQ plus community in Long Island, New York. And uh, with us on the show tonight is the principal investigator of that study, uh, Dr. Allison LSQ. And Dr. LSQ will discuss with us, with us the uh, alarming uh, uh, results of that uh, survey, which I believe was, uh, well, I can't remember exactly how many people uh, responded. I think it was, it was a lot, uh, but um, it's going to tell us something that we probably already know about Long Island, but I think that probably uh, um, is probably similar to the rest of the country. And that is that disproportionately uh, mental health and uh, issues with your mental health affects the is affecting the LGBTQ plus community, and uh, especially those in the transgender community. That's not surprising at all. But we'll be talking about that. But before we do that, news of the queer. Uh -uh. I know that's right. Oh no, she didn't say what. All right. So on the news. First thing, uh, there was a poll that came out just recently. Oh, and by the way, for those of you that are wondering, Alexa is not here. Uh, she has had uh, to go be with her family. So she is with her family today um, handling some things. So uh, it's just little old me. Uh, black voters uh, 
support LGBTQ rights overall, but are divided on transgender rights. So this just came out yesterday. It's a survey of black voters by the Kaiser Family Foundation and the GRIO revealed the mood and opinions of black voters as the 2022 midterm election. Well, this article says approaches, but it is here. Uh, The polling examined black voters Uh, voting intentions, motivations, and views on key electoral issues for the upcoming midterm. It also examined Black voters' attitudes towards the Democratic and Republican parties, views on electoral integrity, and past experiences with voter suppression. So the polling found that, in general, Black voters are supportive of policies that protect the rights of LGBTQ individuals, with more support among younger voters those who identify as liberal, and those who also themselves identify as LGBTQ, not surprisingly. Uh, A large majority, 78% of black voters, support Congress updating the Civil Rights Act to include protections against discrimination based on sexual identity and gender identity, including a large majority across age groups and 93% of black voters who identify as LGBTQ. That's always strange to me. So that means 7% of black voters who identify as queer were opposed to updating the Civil Rights Act to include language uh, uh, preventing discrimination on sexual orientation, even though they identify themselves as queer. That's so strange. Anyway, uh, same-sex also garners solid support among black voters with more than Two in three, 68%, say they support Congress passing a law to protect same-sex merits. Uh, support differs by age among black voters, black voters, not viewers, <laughs> with uh, nearly eight in 10, 70, 78% of black voters ages 18 to 29, they support same-sex marriage, um, compared to a narrow majority, narrow, or majority, 55% of those 65 and older. This isn't surprising at all. Uh, Most voters support allowing public schools to teach students about sexual orientation and gender identity, but those who are parents are more divided. Nearly 6 in 10, that'd be 58% of black voters, support allowing public schools to teach students about sexual orientation and gender identity. However, while a clear majority of black voters, 61%, who are not parents support this, black voters who are parents of children under 18 are more divided. 52% support, 48% oppose. Um, And more black voters oppose rather than support allowing transgender student athletes to compete on sports teams that match their gender identity. So um, fewer than half of black voters, 43%, support allowing trans student athletes to compete on sports teams that match their gender identity. So uh, I think the, the, what we're seeing here is there's a lot of LGBTQ support for those that are queer. Uh, but when you get into gender identity, in particular trans, things get a little bit more dicey. Uh, with more black voters being opposed than supportive of trans student athletes competing on sports teams that match their gender identity, which I think we're seeing this argument play out within 
or this schism, I should say, play out within the gay community. I myself know many, many uh, gay men and women who uh, are concerned about trans females playing on women's sports teams in high school and in college. So um, I personally think it's a solution in search of a problem because the numbers are so tiny. And I think it's more important to err on the side of supporting the transgender community and letting the schools work it out themselves than spending a lot of time, money, effort, resources in passing laws that affect uh, a community of people that is already so oppressed uh, and so um, uh, stuck in terms of their uh, mental health, as we'll find out tonight uh, in the interview. So it's sad, uh, but um, not surprising. Uh, Moving on. Uh, and we'll just continue talking about this. Uh, Florida, uh, this happened a few days ago. Florida uh, has a rule that will effectively ban gender affirming care for minors. The Florida Board of Medicine and Board of Osteopathic Medicine Joint Rules slash Legislative Committee. Boy, that's a title. Um, a committee, okay, advanced a rule in Florida uh, that would effectively ban gender-affirming care for minors in the state. The policy, which would likely block a minor's access to puberty blockers, hormone therapies, and surgeries, a rare intervention for transgender youth, will now head to the full uh, board of medicine and board of osteopathy for finalization and a vote. It came after the Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo in June asked the board to establish a standard for complex and irreversible gender affirming care treatments. Ladapo recommended against certain pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical as well as surgical treatments for gender dysphoria. Puberty blockers, a form of gender affirming care is reversible. Uh, I can understand the concern around taking someone who is very, very young says they are ready to transition, transitioning them, and later on the person regretting that decision because they were very, very young when they made the decision. I do get that. Uh, Unfortunately, or paradoxically, I guess we should say, the earlier that someone who is transgender makes that transformation, the better the outcome. So, It's one of these tough situations that I'm not sure we need to be legislating uh, anymore that we need to be legislating abortions. I think it needs to be left to uh, the child, the parents, and the doctors. But that's me personally, of course. Everything I say is right, so there you have it. All right, so um, moving on. Let's see. So uh, Val Demings uh, is running against Marco Rubio uh, for Senate. Uh, Not sure that she'll win, but uh, in the final home stretch of her campaign to unseat Marco Rubio in Florida and Florida, she's putting up one heck of a fight uh, all the way to the bitter bitter end. So this happened uh, two days ago. The Congresswoman took to Twitter to blast Rubio for his lack of leadership when it comes to gun violence after the 2016 mass shooting at Pulse, the gay nightclub in Orlando, where 49 people were killed 
and 53 or more were wounded by the gunman, Omar Mateen. Uh, This is what she says. Shame on Marco Rubio for using the Pulse nightclub shooting as an excuse to run for re-election after his failed presidential run and then do nothing about gun violence. Violence, he definitely has not done anything about gun violence. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, um, in June, uh, Rubio voted against codifying same-sex marriage into federal law. He also opposes non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people as well as gender-neutral bathrooms, and he has a zero rating with the HRC. So we'll see what happens in Florida, but uh, I don't know. Uh, My partner says that Democrats should just give up on Florida. Uh, They're crazy and just move on. So (laughs) we might, he he might have a point there. Uh, But anyway, and a couple more things that we have here. Um, Let's see. Uh, Well, actually, one thing that I wanted to talk about. Uh, and this is Bob the Drag Queen. And we'll actually end with this. Um, Bob the Drag Queen, uh, he uh, was on one of the seasons. Actually, no, yeah, just one of the seasons, perhaps two, of RuPaul's Drag Race. Anyway, he's very loved. And he just came out with a new song, uh, a new video. And uh, it's called Black. And I'm going to play some of it for you as we go to break. Uh, And it has lots of words that we can't say on the air. So you'll hear a lot of bleeping. But anyway, uh, we'll finish out with that. And uh, when we come back, we'll have our interview with Dr. Allison LSQ, uh, who is the principal investigator of an LGBTQ plus study that just took place in Long Island uh, looking at the health needs, both mental and physical, with some in Long Island, uh, and the results are somewhat remarkable and surprising. Uh, and with that, uh, we will be right back. I'm black with a capital black. Teddy's brand new. To watch they back Cause I don't play games When it come to my money Yeah, I be telling jokes But ain't a damn thing funny Nickname Vagatron Are you ready to Gagatron? Got you walking funny It's a webby on Make sure my hair is on Before I carry on And got the game Locked tighter than the Pentagon The following is a Public Affairs Bulletin Board announcement Brought to you by WRFG 89.3 FM WRFG.org Your station for progressive information And hand-picked quality music PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, is hosting the Women's Socialism Conference in Atlanta on November 12th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Neighborhood Church in Candler Park. The Women's Socialism Conference is open to all who are for equal rights and will engage in a discussion on the challenges facing humanity today. The overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court marks a historic turning point in U.S. politics. This decision is central to a decades-long plan by the right wing to roll back democratic rights won by struggle in previous decades. Again, the date for the Women's Socialism Conference is November 12th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Neighborhood Church, 1561 McClendon Avenue Northeast, Atlanta, Georgia, 30307. For registration information on Instagram and Twitter, it's at PSL Atlanta. On Tuesday, November 8th, WRFG will air live election night coverage from Democracy Now! 
The election night special will air from 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern Standard Time. This program will feature in-depth analysis and real-time results from around the country on congressional races, gubernatorial races, and ballot initiatives. The WRFG Tuesday Night Jazz Forum program, Spectrum, will be preempted for this special Democracy Now! broadcast. Once again, that's Tuesday, November 8th, from 10 p.m. to midnight, right here on your station for progressive information and hand-picked quality music. WRFG 89.3 FM and streaming online at WRFG.org. WRG invites you to our fall CD sale on Saturday, November 19th. We've got boxes and boxes of lightly used jazz, blues, rock, R&B, and folk CDs priced at $3 and up. The sale is from 2 to 5 p.m. on Saturday the 19th in the Harlan Joy Community Room. That's on the second floor of the Little Five Points Community Center. Now, you may want to bring your own bag to carry home your treasures and be sure to take time to enjoy the Great Speckled Bird Photo Exhibit, which will be on display in the Harlan Joy Room during the sale. The Little Five Points Community Center is located at 1083 Austin Avenue Northeast, Atlanta 30307. That's the corner of Austin and Euclid in Little Five Points. 
We hope to see you at WRFG's Fall CD Sale from 2 to 5 p.m. on Saturday, November 19th. Proceeds benefit WRFG 89.3 FM, your independent community radio station for progressive information and hand-picked quality music is streaming around the world via the free WRG mobile app and WRG.org. On October 14th, WRFG hosted the opening of the Great Speckled Bird Big Photo Exhibit as the Harlan Joy Community Room became a gallery. The exhibit continues to be on display for public viewing until the end of November, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. The Great Speckled Bird was a countercultural newspaper from the late 60s to the mid-70s, headquartered right here in Atlanta, Georgia, that was full of photography, art, and journalism that critiqued local and international politics through a lens of collective liberation and international solidarity. The legacy of the bird is inextricably tied to the creation of WRFG, and it is fitting that we should host the exhibit. These big photos are curated and crafted in DIY fashion, very true to the spirit of its contributors and readers, and depict movements and moments in Atlanta over 50 years ago. Once again, the exhibit is open for public viewing every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Those wishing to view during gallery hours or make an appointment outside of those hours are encouraged to contact the office beforehand. The contact information is 404-523-3471 or office at wrfg.org. We thank you for your continued support. And for more information, please visit our website at wrfg.org. And oh, welcome back. Again, you're listening to Alternative Perspectives on WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM. And now for our guest. Uh, just last month, which is October, in case you weren't paying attention, uh, Stony Brook Medicine released the findings of a 2021 health needs study of the LGBTQ plus community um, in Long Island, New York. And with us on the show tonight is Dr. Allison Ellisque. Dr. Ellisque is the medical director of the Adolescent LGBTQ plus care program at Stony Brook and the principal investigator of the study. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ellis Q. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much for inviting me. So before we get into the study itself, which was quite, quite surprising to me, some of the findings, but um, can you tell the listeners just to kind of set the stage a, a little bit about Stony Brook itself? Yeah, sure. So Stony Brook Medicine is, as you mentioned, on Long Island in Suffolk County, New York, um, and it's an integrated health system. So it comprises uh, four different hospitals, uh, and it helps to uh, unite all of Stony Brook University's health-related initiatives, education, research, and patient care. And at Stony Brook Medicine, we are really um, committed to cultural sensitivity and health equity for all communities, including the LGBTQ community. And all of our hospitals um, have been designated leaders in LGBTQ healthcare by a human rights campaign uh, last year. Um, Stony Brook Medicine is pretty big. It treats more than 800,000 outpatients every year and more than 100,000 emergency patients each year. So it's a very large organization. 
Wow. And and that it just I wonder why it is that Stony Brook has become um uh has put such an emphasis on being um inclusive like that. Is, is that something that's generating from the top? Um I wonder how that happened. I think it's generating both from the top but also from the community. Um Long Island is a is a very long island as the name implies and uh we are not that far I guess from Manhattan from New York City. Uh, but we found that people in our community who identified as transgender or non-binary were traveling into the New York City, which is sometimes two hours or even more on a regular basis in order to get health care. And we found that these are health care needs that we are actually able to provide right in their backyard or right in their neighborhood. So there's no reason to travel two, three hours uh, by train, by car, or sometimes even by boat in order to access these services when we really can be serving the community right here locally. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, uh, I, I noticed that the study centers on LGBTQ adults. Is there an age range? What does that mean, adults? Yeah, so it was available for anybody who's 18 years old and older. Um, we, okay. had, we did have participants as old as in their 80s answer the online survey as well. So we had a pretty good age range. Oh, wow. But you yourself are focused more on adolescence, although um, I believe you told me that you see adults up to, or uh, up to 26, is that what you said? Yeah, so mm. I'm a pediatrician trained initially and then have a subspecialty in adolescent medicine, and I see patients 12 to 26, so I see patients through that adolescent and even young adult age range, and then transition someone over to an adult medicine provider when they age out at 25 or 26. So how is it that you ended up becoming the principal author of this study. That's interesting. That's, Go ahead. That's a great question. A study focusing on adults, so, you know, someone from pediatrics, it seems like an interesting or maybe confusing choice. But um, at Stony Brook Medicine, we have an LGBTQ committee, and I'm one of the co-chairs of the committee. Uh, I'm, I represent more of the clinical aspect of it. Uh, so it kind of was a natural choice because I'm so involved with the community and um, different measures throughout Stony Brook Medicine to update and change and make sure that we're providing affirming care uh, for both pediatric and adult age ranges, that it kind of made sense for me to be involved and participate and kind of take a leader role, leadership role in the study. Okay. And and I did want to ask a little bit, I wanted to get into the weeds a little bit about this, the study itself and how it worked. So can you give me kind of the nuts and bolts of, apparently it was an online study? Yes. Yeah, it was an online study that we actually created the study. We um, used some questions from a CDC study, but we also used some questions from some other um, nationally and international uh, study um, surveys that have already been established. And we actually worked with over 30 partners in the community, in our local uh, Long Island community, who work with the LGBTQ community in different areas. For example, uh, folks who work with housing or folks who work in education um, folks who work with the immigrant population. Uh, and we had input from all of the community partners. We also held focus groups with um, diverse groups of LGBTQ individuals throughout our community, based different races, different ethnicities, different age ranges, different genders, in order to make sure that everybody kind of agrees on how the questions were being asked, what issues we were asking. We wanted to make sure that it was inclusive, so we got a lot of helpful information. And uh, then we... Uh, the survey was approved by Stony Brook Medicine's IRB, our Institutional Review Board, and it was an online anonymous survey. 
So uh, anybody who filled it out, we didn't uh, capture their name or any identifying information. Um, and um, it was out between June uh, through September. So we launched the survey Pride Month 2021. We kept it open for four months. And between us and our community partners, we really tried to get the survey out to everybody to make sure that people throughout Long Island were aware of it and tried to have their voice heard. We really wanted to make sure we had different populations, different age groups, different uh, socioeconomic status individuals. Um, we wanted to make sure that we had a wide range of results so we can really help to implement change throughout Long Island to help everybody. So how would I have come about, how would I have happened upon this study if I was uh, online? Would it pop up in a Facebook thing or uh, social media or how, how did that work? Yes. So we use social media. We used online dating apps. Uh, we use our community partners sent out information to their mailing lists. Uh, if our community partners had any meetings, for example, they posted it, uh, the QR code for the survey. We collaborated with some restaurants. Uh, or bars. We worked with drag queens who were holding their own events during Pride Month, for example. And um, so we had a bunch of different people throughout the community, different levels, um, ranging from the health commissioner uh, and, and some politicians, all the way, like I was saying, to people in the social field, like restaurants, bars, and, uh, and drag queens, to help get the information out. And everybody really, all the partners really um, kind of bought into the survey and understood the importance of it. And understood that the more people that answer it and the more diverse the response, really the better information we're going to get in order to help make change. And how many responses did you get? How many surveys did you get? Uh, we ended up getting 1,100 validated surveys, which is I'm so excited about. What is That was more than what your, your goal was? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Our, our initial goal was 500. And then as we saw people responding, we set the goal of 1,000. Um, and we decided to keep the, the survey open through September in order to help target some of the college students. In June, during Pride Month, a lot of the college students are not on campus. So in September, we had another push kind of targeting some of the uh, college students who would be 18 and older who identified as LGBTQ to try to reach out to them to answer the questions of the survey as well. Um, so, yeah, we were thrilled with the response. Yeah. And, and um, how many questions are on the survey, by the way? Um. There were over a hundred questions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What and is it, it like multiple choice or? Um, yeah. So there, most of it was multiple choice. Um, there were some free text options where people can put it, enter in if they had any extra comments. And you would think at the end of maybe a 20 minute survey or so that people would be sick of it and just close it out. Many, many, many respondents put in um, long paragraphs of experiences they've had in healthcare, either positive or negative. Uh, or thanked us for, for having this survey out there. Um, so we, I was surprised with how many free text comments we got. Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. Um, one more anal retentive question for me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's the scientist in me, although I'm not a scientist. But how do you ensure that the people that are answering the survey actually are in Long Island? Uh, so we, we don't know 100% for sure. Um, yeah. We one of the inclusion questions is um, their zip code where they yeah. live or attend school. So you could live in another state, but if you were attending school, like attending college, for example, in Long Island, then you would still qualify. But if you put your zip code, your main living zip code outside of the Long Island zip codes, then the survey automatically closed out. Okay. Uh, so 
we're, we're hoping that people were honest about it, but we weren't capturing any information like IP address or where the survey was completed to, to know for sure. That makes sense. All right. I'm going to introduce you again. Uh, we are speaking with Dr. LSQ, um, who is the medical director of the Adolescent LGBTQ Plus Care Program at Stony Brook and the principal investigator of a study that was just released last month in October on health needs for the LGBTQ plus community in Long Island. We will be right back. On Tuesday, November 8th, WRFG will air live election night coverage from Democracy Now! The election night special will air from 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern Standard Time. This program will feature in-depth analysis and real-time results from around the country on congressional races, gubernatorial races, and ballot initiatives. The WRFG Tuesday Night Jazz Forum program, Spectrum, will be preempted for this special Democracy Now! broadcast. Once again, that's Tuesday, November 8th, from 10 p.m. to midnight, right here on your station for progressive information and hand-picked quality music. WRFG 89.3 FM and streaming online at WRFG.org. If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. All right. Uh, and uh, we are back. Uh, you were listening to Alternative Perspectives on WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM. I'm your host, Greg Bosson. Uh, this is Atlanta's only queer radio hour. And we are discussing a study that just came out. Uh, last month out of Stony Brook Medicine on the health needs of the LGBTQ plus community in Long Island, New York. Um, and we are discussing the results with the principal investigator of the study, Dr. Ellis Q. Uh, so <clears throat> we were uh, talking about uh, the study itself and the specifics of how that uh, it worked. Um, so let's get in a little bit to the results. So what were some of the more, um, I guess, important or uh, findings? And was there anyone in particular that surprised you? Yeah, so the probably the most striking results were really with the mental health areas. Um, when we looked at our survey over, like I mentioned, there were over a thousand people responded and more than 60 percent. So nearly two thirds of people reported that they had felt chronic depression which is feeling sad or depressed almost daily for a, two, a minimum two-year uh, interval. And um, when we looked at uh, who identified their mental health as being poor, <clears throat> excuse me, or, or fair, almost half, just under 50% identified that. So people are really struggling. Uh, even things like self, thoughts of self-harm, thoughts of wanting to hurt themselves, more than a third of people had thoughts of self-harm. Um, but when we asked about who is receiving mental health care right now, whether that's medication or therapy or both, um, only about a third of the responses were respondents were actually getting mental health care. 
And we found that there were many things that were um, obstacles or barriers to getting care, both mental health care and routine preventative care and medical care in general. Um, up here in, in Suffolk County, it is um, suburban, but parts are, are um, rural. So transportation or travel time and distance has been issues for some of these patients, some of these respondents. Um, but also we found that when we asked about their experiences in healthcare thus far, um, over a third, nearly 40% of people said that they've had a negative experience so far in healthcare, either with a provider themselves or with a staff member in an office. And obviously that's going to impact how people, how people use a doctor's office or how people go to get their healthcare. And I'm guessing for the other nearly 60% of people who didn't have an experience, I'm guessing the majority of them either have heard of someone who've had an experience or know of somebody or even heard about it on the news uh, who've had a negative experience in healthcare and makes them worried or concerned. What's it going to be like when I go to the doctor? Yeah. And, and, and I was wondering about that because that really surprised me too, that so many people had had a negative experience in a doctor's office. Um, and I, I, I do want to get back to the mental health aspect of this, but <clears throat> if I, what is being done or is there anything being done to help train uh, medical professionals on how to deal with um, members of the LGBTQ plus community that come to the doctor's office? Yeah, absolutely. We're doing work on that. And that's one of the things that this survey highlighted is how much work we need to do across Long Island. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something we had started before the survey, but after seeing the survey results, it's something that we really, really tried to work on more. So we're, as our, our LGBTQ committee is working really hard to provide um, culturally sensitive training across the board to those in, in all of our hospitals in Stony Brook Medicine. And that's not just the, the providers. So when someone walks into a healthcare an office or the hospital, they meet many people before and after the provider the people at the front desk, the nurses, the techs in a hospital, even someone who brings you your lunch tray. Um, so we've, we've te uh, done trainings with every level of person uh, in the outpatient offices and in the hospital to make sure that they know to use a, a chosen name, to ask about how a pronoun and refer to someone, just basically refer to them the name that they want to go by um, and to understand why some of this is so important. Um, mm -hmm. We've also really worked on getting a lot of this information into the curricula for the um, health science students. So the medical students, the dental students, for example, um, there's now uh, multiple different times throughout their training that they're getting some information, some of this information, even doing different role playing, for example, to make sure that they feel more comfortable asking these questions or um, being in different medical situations with LGBTQ individuals. So, yes, these are things that, that we're really focusing on. And this is something that you are doing with the, um, you know, in, in your own hospitals, the Stony Brook um, system. But I'm wondering if this is something that you guys are putting together, would it be possible to um, provide this as a service to other hospitals in and around the area? Is that something that you're looking at? Yes. Yes. So we've, we have already started to do that with, for example, some of our community organizations. Uh, they've had us come in. They're not, if they're not medical providers, um, they're dealing with the community in different areas. They're having us come in just to talk to them about um, how to interact with LGBTQ individuals in a culturally sensitive way, whether it, it's in a healthcare setting or not. Um, for example, one of our community partners has a, a summer camp 
And they thought it was really important that their counselors, which are mostly high school or college age, get this training because they have um, young kids who identify as LGBTQ and they wanted to make sure they felt comfortable when they were at summer camp um, or dealing, training some of the staff uh, at, at other community partners. Um, we have also been in touch with different um, hospitals and medical systems, whether it's small private practices or some of the larger hospitals to get this information out. And um, we've had them send emails to, um, to our committee and we will go either go out there or do it virtually um, and provide the training. So you're not necessarily saying this, but I'm wondering, you know, at the beginning of the of the um, our interview, you were saying that in order to get care, you know, you're in Long Island, you'd have to drive sometimes two hours to get back into Manhattan. Um, Is there are you saying that underneath that statement, there's kind of an assumption that the likelihood of you getting treated respectfully is better in Manhattan than it is in Long Island at this point? At this point, I think no. I think we've come a very, very long way. Okay. Uh, And I think people were more focused on traveling to Manhattan before in order to get specific gender-affirming care treatments, whether that's surgery or hormones. I think not really even knowing that we at Stony Brook are able to and comfortable um, and have this specialization and expertise to be able to provide it much closer. Um, so part of that was just making a lot of this information more accessible to the public and letting people know, yes, we do have these specialists who have expertise in it and are comfortable in doing different surgeries or providing different therapies or medications. And I'm wondering also, are there other um, facilities or um, um, research institutes around the country that have done similar studies that you're coordinating with or is it happening in other places? Yeah, so I was just at a conference um, presenting some of this data last month, and um, people came up to me and told me that they've run similar things in their area or they're looking to run it. Um, So, yes, we're looking to collaborate in multiple different areas across the country now. There's been a lot of excitement. It was very well received um, because it was so uh, it was there were so many questions so detailed and we were able to get such great information um, that, yes, we're looking to replicate this with in collaboration with other institutions across the country. And just to get a little bit more specific, some, I guess what I'm wondering is this, the people that are having problems in the doctor's offices, um, more of it has to do with the gender uh, identity issue than the sexuality issue at this point, I would imagine. Correct. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah, I thought so. All right. And um, however, if I can just touch on that for a minute, we found that um, although some of the negative experiences may not have occurred among, let's say, or gay or lesbian individuals who identify as cisgender, um, we found that they weren't always disclosing their status or who their partners were or what types of sexual activity they were engaging in because they weren't comfortable. So not necessarily that they weren't getting they were getting negative experiences or discriminatory care, but you can't really treat a patient um, correctly and really do a good job of handling what issues may arise, understanding what they might be at risk for, and really counseling them appropriately if you don't know who they are or who their partners are. So if they're not comfortable um, sharing that information with their providers, even though that may not be considered a negative experience, I would say it's also missing out on on healthcare. Uh, definitely. And, and then uh, another thing that comes to my mind is the way uh, that the um, 
what it's like for a doctor uh, in this current environment uh, where there's such a push towards seeing as many patients as possible in a day. Uh, you know, there's already a struggle for a doctor to make time to really get to know the patient. So this would make it even more challenging for sure. Potentially. But yeah. one thing that I tell like the trainees, the students I work with and residents, it doesn't take a very long time to just establish what name someone goes by and what pronoun they go by. Uh, and it does go a very, very long way. Mm-hmm. Well, and to ask them, you know, if they have a partner, you know, who they're, you know, you know, I mean, is it appropriate to ask a patient if they're gay or straight? Is that relevant? Uh, you know, to me, the label is not as important. Um, so if they want to share that information with me, great. Um, but if I'm asking someone in adolescence, we ask about sexual activity all the time, or at least we should be. So instead of me saying, do you have a boyfriend, uh, completely assuming who the person is with, I ask them, do you, are you in a relationship or do you have a partner? Tell me about your partners. So that it's kind of open and it doesn't take any more time to ask it one way or another. But I'm going to get a lot more valuable information. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, just because someone identifies as gay or identifies as lesbian, for example, that doesn't indicate exactly who their partners are. Um, so to me, it's more important to know who their partners are and what they're doing with them. So I know how to screen them appropriately. Yes, yes. And and I did want to get a, um, I wanted to circle back to the mental health aspect of this. And I know that you're working, I guess I want to make sure I understand. So you do work with adolescents, you're, you're in pediatrics, but are you dealing with the medical aspect or are you dealing more with the psychological aspect of the adolescents? Both. Okay. So um, as an adolescent medicine provider, I see patients 12 to 26 years of age. So I see patients during their early adolescence through, let's say, high school and college and even into young adulthood. Um, and we do both. Uh, preventative or primary care. So we'll see patients for their, their their school forms, sports physicals, working papers, things like that, their sick visits. But then we also do a lot of the subspecialty work like, like birth control, like um, HIV prep or pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, uh, like dealing with uh, depression or anxiety, like managing eating disorders. So we do both mental health and um, physical health and preventative care and subspecialty care. Pretty much anything that comes up in the teenage years is in our wheelhouse. Well, what I, this is what I wanted to ask you. And it's, this is almost like an anecdotal. It's not like you would have a necessary answer, but in your work with adolescents that are queer um, and I use, I don't use the term in a negative context. It's just an, it's one way of describing the LGBTQ plus community, although there's a negative connotation with queer, but that was a whole nother show that was, Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, somebody wrote a story in the Atlantic a couple of years ago. Um, just, you know, it was gay. He's a gay guy, but he was talking about how there's just the l- number of letters is just becoming overwhelming and that we should just settle on Q. But anyway, um, so uh, but my question <laughs> has to do with now I knew when I grew up, uh, I. I didn't really experience any um, uh, homophobia comments or anything homophobic comments from my family. And I wasn't pressured to date girls or anything like that. Um, But, you know, my community, you know, the school that I was in, uh, the homophobia that I saw there, um, that is what really kind of informed how I felt about my 
budding sexuality. And uh, it was a, it was a big problem. So I'm wondering in your experience with adolescents, do you have an opinion upon where the issues lie um, when you have a kid who's having difficulty? Does it more have to do with issues related to the family's non-acceptance or fear of non-acceptance, or does it more have to do with what's happening at school? Honestly, each person's individual and different. Um, mm-hmm. And I have, I have patients that fall under both of those categories. So I have some patients who, even if they haven't disclosed to their family yet, they're concerned about how they're going to respond. Their parents or family may have made negative comments about people on TV or about some of the policies that are out in other states. So they kind of have an idea of how their, their family may, what they, how they may respond. Um, but then we have a lot of families that are incredibly supportive and, um, and really, really want to help and care for their child and be involved in their care. Um, I think school systems, each school is a little bit different. I know, for example, the school that my children go to is incredibly positive. I, I was just there for parent teacher night and almost every classroom door had a rainbow sticker on it and oh. um, had just positive things in, in almost every single door that we saw um, signs posted throughout the school. Um, but not every school is like that. You know, we have some schools in the area who are uh, fighting about taking down flags um, and not allowing different groups to participate um, or clubs to be represented. So I, I think it can fall under both, um, and which is why I think it's so important that the medical area is a safe place for people, especially for adolescents, um, to show that, you know, yes, you can disclose this information. It's a piece of you. It's not all of you. You know, we can we can address it. You can talk about it here safely. Um, and the, the parents is actually something that we do a lot in adolescent medicine. Um, sometimes I'll help patients disclose any information to parents um, because p- kids will say, my mom's going to kill me. And I reassure them, mom's not going to kill you if I'm sitting right next to you. She won't do that. So let's have a conversation. Let's break the news together. I'll be here to help with that conversation I'll help mom with getting through it, and then we'll get the initial shock over with, and then we can talk about support groups for you or support groups for, for mom or your, or your family um, to help with that, or even organizations to help with um, providing care or, or providing uh, resources for both the, the adolescent and the parent. I, I, I certainly hope that you see more positive outcomes from something like that than you do negative. I, I hope that's the case for you. Yeah, it's sometimes a process because I start seeing patients so young at 11 or 12. um, Sometimes parents are a little bit stuck initially. Uh, And, you know, as a parent, I can understand that. When when your child is born, before they even say a word, you have an idea of what their future may look like. And I can imagine the idea of, um, you know, having them calling them by a different name or, um, you know, I can imagine that would be a difficult transition for parents. Um, so sometimes it's also explaining to the adolescent that it's a process for parents too, <clears throat> that, right. uh, you know, right. pa- parents need support to be able to make this change. Um, yeah. and, uh, so it, it not necessarily is a mean way, you know, a mean thing, but it takes the time, you know, if, if someone's been calling your child a name for 10, 12 years, and now we have to call them a different name, they're going to slip up and, um, you know, you have to be understanding as they start to make that transition and, and helping provide therapy for both the child and the, and the parent. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not trans, so I don't pretend to even know what that would be like. But it, it does remind me of something that I tell other people 
which is um, just dealing with accepting the fact that I was gay um, was extremely challenging because I grew up in the same culture and the same community as everybody else. So I had, I just didn't have the luxury of not addressing the issue of homophobia. You know, it's like when you're gay yourself, you can't really address, you know, you have to address the issue or less, unless you're going to go through your life hating yourself and not being who you are. So just as, I have to deal with it. It's it's a shift that I had to make in order to be able to accept. Same thing is going to be true for the parent. And so in a way, you know, the child is like needs to understand, you know, this is going to be a thing just like it was for you. You know, it's going to be a thing for them as well. So, yeah, I had uh, one parent explained to me, I, I almost had to mourn the loss of my son before I could accept my daughter. Uh, and mm-hmm. They needed some help going through that. And they, in that situation, they didn't know any other parents initially who had a, a transgender child. Um, so that's something else that we're really trying to do is have different community events, um, especially directed towards like families or, or children or adolescents, so that people have a way of, of seeing other families with gender diverse kids mm-hmm. or gender diverse parents and seeing how it, they can be accepted and you know, building bonds and having that um, resources is also really helpful. Sometimes well, I, mean, I think feel like our kids feel like I'm the only one in my entire community. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same. That's the same reason for, you know, PFLAG parents and, you know, friends of lesbians and gays, because they need other people that are going through the, through the same, uh, through the same uh, situation. So, um, all right. So um, we only have a few minutes left, but I just, this is probably the most important question of all. So you've done this study, you've come out with these results. Um, what now? What 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 do you hope to achieve from the results of the study, and how do you, how do you hope to turn that into some sort of effective change? Uh, well, we shared the results back with the community partners and with the community at large. We thought that was really important. We had asked the community to let their voice be heard, and we wanted to make sure they know. We heard your voice loud and clear. We hear that there are areas that we're struggling in, and here's what we're going to do to try to address it. So we've tried to come up with strategies in multiple different areas to try to address it. Um, Like for the clinical services, uh, things like um, telehealth. Uh, Some people are more comfortable doing things online. It also helps to decrease transportation distance and um, cost and time. So making telehealth options more available for mental health and for um, preventative care, physical health issues. Um, We're really working on expanding mental health services because, as we mentioned, mental health people are really, really struggling in this community, um, and we need to be able to do better with being able to prescribe medication in a gender-affirming way, uh, have therapists who are not going to misname somebody or misgender their patients. Um, We've uh, we've worked on um, creating more um, online support groups for adolescents and for parents, like you were saying, uh, for parents of gender diverse teens. Um, we even our OBGYN clinic now has um, extended hours every uh, once a month for people who identify as trans to be able to, or non-binary, to be able to get gynecological services in a more comfortable setting. Some people don't feel comfortable going in for a pap smear, for example, in what they may consider a well women's clinic when they might not identify as a woman, yet they still have that body part and need to get it checked out. So just trying things like that to try to make it um, more accessible and more comfortable. 
Um, like we mentioned, we've done a lot more of the cultural sensitivity trainings throughout the hospital at every level. And we've made a lot of changes in the um, medical school curricula, in the um, residency curricula, adding in some of the um, role modeling um, and adding in just general lectures, discussions, um, and sample cases so that students have, have a chance to talk through some of the cases and understand why this is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then even on a community front, we really have been collaborating with making more, um, having more community events. Just last month was um, coming out day. And uh, we had a, a, a great family event, with, in, including pumpkin picking. It was very fun, but it, it was, to me, it was even more than that, seeing people comfortable. Um, I had uh, one parent tell me that this was uh, their nine-year-old's first LGBTQ event. Their nine-year-old identifies as non-binary. And uh, they thought it was such a big step to come to a, an event like this. And they felt just, they were nervous going, but they felt such positivity, such support. Um, and they, they absolutely loved it. Um, so to see that, and then also to see medical providers participating in that, I think is really important for the community. So those are yeah. even just some of the changes that we've been working on. Well, that's, that sounds, uh, that sounds great. And uh, particularly, in this environment, uh, I think it's really important to focus on that because for some unknown reason, uh, there are, uh, uh, I guess, uh, people on the right that uh, are just so upset about this uh, non-binary and transgender thing. I, don't, I, I cannot understand why they are so angry and upset. Why does it matter to me if this person over here wants to be called they? Why is that a problem for me? It's so strange. I don't understand. <laughs> it's just the weirdest thing. But anyway. Um, I you. couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> it's so strange. But um, thank you so much, Dr. LSQ, uh, for, um, for who you are and what you're doing. Uh, Thank you so much. And and thanks to Stony Brook for the uh, study. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to do it for us. Uh, next up, uh, we are going to have Peach State uh, Festival. Um, and have yourself a wonderful week. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Alternative Perspectives. Mm-hmm.